0: Welcome back, readers and listeners, and thank you, as always, for joining me today. We are going to be reading chapter 44 today in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Chapter 44. Francie had been working two weeks when the layoff came. The girls exchanged looks while the boss explained that it was just for a few days. A few days, six months long, explained Anastasia for Francie's information. The girls were going over to a greenpoint factory which needed hands for winter orders, poinsettias, and artificial holly wreaths. When the layoff came there, they'd go on to another factory, and so on. They were Brooklyn migratory workers, following seasonal work from one part of the borough to the other. They urged Francie to go along with them, but she wanted to try new work. She figured that since she had to work, she'd get variety in it by changing her job each chance she got. Then, like the sodas, she could say she had tried every work there was. Katie found an ad in The World that said a file clerk was wanted, beginner considered, age 16, state religion. Francie bought a sheet of writing paper and an envelope for a penny and carefully wrote an application and addressed it to the ad's number box. Although she was only 14, she and her mother agreed that she could pass for 16 easily. So she said she was 16 in the letter. Two days later, Francie received a reply on an exciting letterhead, a pair of shears laying on a folded newspaper with a pot of paste nearby. It was from the Model Press Clipping Bureau on Canal Street, New York and it asked Miss Nolan to report for an interview. Sissy went shopping with Francie and helped her buy a grown-up dress and her first pair of high-heeled pumps. When she tried on her new outfit, Mama and Sissy swore that she looked 16 except for her hair. Her braids made her look very kiddish. Mama, please let me get it bobbed, begged Francie. It took you fourteen years to grow that hair, said Mama, and I'll not let you have it cut off. Gee, Mama, you're way behind the time. Why do you want short hair like a boy? It would be easier to care for. Taking care of her hair should be a woman's pleasure. But Katie, protested Sissy, all the girls are bobbing their hair nowadays. They're fools, then. A woman's hair is her mystery. Daytimes, it's pinned up, but at night, alone with her man, the pins come out and it hangs loose like a shining cape. It makes her a special secret woman for the man. At night, all cats are gray, said Sissy wickedly. None of your remarks, said Katie sharply. It looked just like Irene Castle if I had short hair, persisted Francie. They make Jew women cut off their hair when they marry, so no other man will look at them. Nuns get their hair cut off to prove they're done with men. Why should any young girl do it when she doesn't have to? Fancy was about to reply when Mama said, we'll have no more arguments. All right, said Fancy, But when I'm 18, I'll be my own boss. Then you'll see. When you're 18, you can shave your scalp for all I care. In the meantime... She wound Francie's two heavy braids around her head and pinned them in place with bone hairpins, which she took from her own hair. There, she stepped back and surveyed her daughter. It looks just like a shining crown, she announced dramatically. It does make her look at least 18, conceded Sissy. Francie looked in the mirror. She was pleased that she looked so old the way Mama had fixed her hair. But she wouldn't give in and say so. All my life I'll have headaches carrying this load of hair around, she complained. Lucky you if that's all that gives you a life of headaches, said Mama. Next morning, Neely escorted his sister to New York. As the train came on to the Williamsburg Bridge, after leaving Marcy Avenue Station, Francie noticed that many people sit- seated in the car rose, as if in a cord, and then sat down again. Why do they do that, Neely? Just as you get on the bridge, there's a bank with a big clock. People stand up to look at the time, so as they know whether they're early or late for work. I bet you a million people look at that clock every day, figured Neely. Francie had anticipated a thrill when she rode over that bridge for the first time, but the ride wasn't half as thrilling as wearing grown-up clothes for the first time. The interview was short. She was hired on trial. Hours, 9 to 5.30, half an hour for lunch, salary, $7 a week to start. First, the boss took her on a tour of inspection of the press clipping bureau. The ten readers sat at long sloping desks. The newspapers of all the states were divided among them. The papers poured into the bureau every hour of every day from every city in every state of the Union. The girls marked and boxed items sought and put down their total and their own identifying number on top of the front page. The marked papers were collected and brought to the printer, who had a hand press, containing an adjustable-date apparatus, and racks of slugs before her. She adjusted the paper's date on her press, inserted the slug containing the name, city, state of the newspaper, and printed as many slips as there were items marked. Then, slips and newspaper went to the cutter, who stood before a large slanting desk and slashed out the marked items with a sharp, curved knife. In spite of the letterhead, there wasn't a pair of shears on the premises. As the cutter slashed out the items, throwing the discarded paper to the floor, a sea of newspaper rose as high as her waist each 15 minutes. A man collected this waste paper and took it away for bailing. The clipped items and slips were turned over to the paster who affixed the clippings to the slips. Then they were filed collected and placed in envelopes and mailed. Francie got onto the filing system very easily. In two weeks, she had memorized the 2,000 or so names or headings on the file box. Then she was put into training as a reader. For two more weeks, she did nothing but study the client's cards, which were more detailed than the file box headings. When an informal examination proved that she had memorized the orders, she was given the Oklahoma papers to read. The boss went over her papers before they went to the cutter and pointed out her mistakes. When she got expert enough not to need checking, the Pennsylvania papers were added. Soon after, she was given the New York State papers and now had three states to read. By the end of August, she was reading more papers and marking more items than any other reader in the bureau. She was fresh to the work, anxious to please, had strong clear eyes, she was the only reader not wearing glasses, and had developed a photographic eye very quickly. She could take in an item at a glance and note immediately whether it was something to mark. She read between 180 200 pay- newspapers a day. The next best reader averaged from a hundred to hundred and ten papers. Yes, Francie was the fastest reader in the Bureau and the poorest paid. Although she had been raised to $10 a week when she went on reading, her runner-up received $25 a week and the other readers received $20. Since Francie never became friendly enough with the girls to be taken into their confidence, she had no way of knowing how grossly underpaid she was. Although Francie liked reading newspapers and was proud to earn ten dollars a week, she was not happy. She had been excited about going to New York, or about going to work in New York. Since such a tiny thing as a flower in a brown bowl at the library had thrilled her so, she expected that the great city of New York would thrill her a hundred times more, but it was not so. The bridge had been the first disappointment. Looking at it from the roof of her house, she had, a, she had thought that crossing it would make her feel like a gossamer-winged fairy flying through the air. But the actual ride over the bridge was no different than the ride above the Brooklyn streets. The bridge was paved in sidewalks and traffic roads like the streets of Broadway, and the tracks were the same tracks. There was no different feeling about the train as it went over the bridge. New York was disappointing. The buildings were higher and the crowds thicker, otherwise it was little different from Brooklyn. From now on, would all new things be disappointing, she wondered. She had often studied the map of the United States and crossed its plains, mountains, deserts, and rivers in her imagination, and it had seemed a wonderful thing. Now she wondered whether she wouldn't be disappointed in that, too. Supposing, she thought, that she was to walk across this great country, She'd start out at seven in the morning, say, and walk westward. She'd put one foot down in front of the other to cover distance, and, as she walked to the west, she'd be so busy with her feet, and with the realization that her footsteps were part of a chain that had started in Brooklyn, that she might think nothing at all of the mountains, rivers, plains, and deserts she came upon. All she'd notice was that some things were strange because they reminded her of Brooklyn and that other things were strange because they were so different from Brooklyn. I guess there's nothing new then in the world, decided Francie unhappily. If there's nothing new, if there is anything new or different, some part of it must be in Brooklyn and I must be used to it and wouldn't wouldn't be able to notice if... wouldn't be able to notice it if I came across it. Like Alexander the Great, Francie grieved, being convinced that there were no new worlds to conquer. She adapted herself to the split-second rhythm of the New Yorker going to and from work. Getting to the office was a nervous ordeal. If she arrived one minute before nine, she was a free person. If she arrived one minute after, she worried because that made her the logical scapegoat of the boss if he happened to be in a bad mood that day. So she learned ways of conserving bits of seconds. Long before the train ground to a stop at her station, she pushed her way to the door to be one of the first expelled when it slid open. Out of the train, she ran like a deer, circling the crowd to be the first up the stairs leading to the street. Walking to the office, she kept close to the buildings so she could turn corners sharply. She crossed street's kitty corner to, stay, to save stepping off and on an extra pair of curbs. At the building, she shoved her way into the elevator, even though the operator yelled, CARS FULL! And all this maneuvering to arrive one minute before instead of after nine. Once she left home ten minutes earlier to have more time. In spite of no need to hurry, she still pushed her way out of the train, flew up the steps, rushed through the streets economically, and crowded into a full elevator. She was fifteen minutes early. The big room was echoingly empty, and she felt desolate and lost. When the other workers rushed in seconds before nine, Francie felt like a traitor. The next morning she slept ten minutes longer, and returned to her original timing. She was the only Brooklyn girl in the Bureau. The others came from Manhattan, Hoboken, the Bronx, and one commuted from Bayonne, New Jersey. Two of the oldest readers there, sisters, had originally come from Ohio. The first day Francie worked at the bureau, one of the sisters said to her, "'You have a Brooklyn accent!' It had sounded like a shocked accusation, and made Francie self-conscious of her speech. She took to pronouncing words carefully, lest she say things like goil for girl and appointment instead of appointment. There were but two people in the bureau to whom she could talk without embarrassment. One was the boss manager. He was a Harvard graduate, and in spite of a broad A which he used indiscriminately, his speech was plain. And his vocabulary less affected than those of the readers, most of whom had graduated from high school and had picked up an extensive vocabulary from years of reading. The other person was Miss Armstrong, who was the only other college graduate. Miss Armstrong was the special city reader. Her desk was isolated in the choicest corner of the room where there was a north and an east window, the best light for reading. She read nothing but the Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, and New York City newspapers. A special messenger brought her each edition of the New York City newspapers soon after it left the presses. When her papers were read up, she didn't have to pitch in as the other readers did and help the girls who were behind. She crocheted or manicured her nails while waiting for the next edition. She was the highest paid, receiving $30 a week. Miss Armstrong was a kindly person, and she took a helpful interest in Francie and tried to draw her out in conversation so she wouldn't feel lonely. Once in the washroom, Francie overheard a remark about Miss Armstrong being the boss's mistress. Francie had heard of, but never seen, one of these fabulous beings. Immediately, she examined Miss Armstrong closely as a mistress. She saw that Miss Armstrong wasn't pretty. Her face was almost simian, with its wide mouth and flat, thick nostrils, and her figure was merely passable. Francie looked at her legs. They were long, slender, and exquisitely molded. She wore the sheerest of flawless silk stockings, and expensively made high-heeled pumps shod her beautifully arched feet. "'Beautiful legs, then, is the secret of being a mistress,' concluded Francie. She looked down at her own long, thin legs. "'I'll never make it, I guess.' Sighing, she resigned herself to a sinless life. There was a class system in the Bureau engendered by the cutter, printer, paster, paper baler, and delivery boy. These workers, illiterate but sharp-witted, who for some reason called themselves the club, assumed that the better educated readers looked down on them. In retaliation, they stirred up as much trouble as possible among the readers. Francie's loyalties were divided by background and education. she belonged to the club class, but by ability and intelligence, she belonged to the readers' Club or readers' class. The club was shrewd enough to feel this division in Francie and tried to use her as a go-between. They informed her of trouble-making office rumors, expecting that she would relay them to the readers and create dissension. But Francie wasn't friendly enough with the readers to exchange gossip with them, and the rumors died with her. So one day, when a cutter told her that Miss Armstrong was leaving in September, and that she, Francie, was to be promoted to the city reader job, Francie assumed this was a rumor invented to arouse jealousy among the readers, all of whom expected the city reading job when and if Miss Armstrong resigned. She thought it was preposterous that she, a girl of 14, with nothing but a grade school education, would be considered eligible to take over the work of a 30-year-old college graduate like Miss Armstrong. It was nearing the end of August, and Francie was worried because Mama hadn't mentioned anything about her going to high school. She wanted desperately to go back to school all the years of talk about higher education she had heard from her mother grandmother and aunts not only made her anxious to get more education but gave her an inferiority complex about her present lack of education she remembered with affection the girls who had written in her autograph book she wanted to be one of them again they came out of the same life as she did they were no further along Her natural place was to go to school with them, not working competitively with older women. She didn't like working in New York. The crowds continually swarming around her made her tremble. She felt that she was being pushed into a way of life that she wasn't ready to handle. And the things that she dreaded worst about working in New York was the crowded L trains. There had been that time in the train when, hanging from a strap and so tightly wedged in the crowd that she couldn't so much as lower her arm, she had felt a man's hand. No matter how she twisted and squirmed, she couldn't get away from that hand. When she swayed with the crowd as the car swerved, the hand tightened. She was unable to twist her head to see whose hand it was. She stood in desperate futility, helplessly enduring the indignity. She could have called out and protested, but she was too ashamed to call public attention to her predicament. It seemed an eternity before the crowd thinned out enough for her to move to a different part of the car. After that, standing in a crowded train became a dreaded ordeal. One Sunday, when she and Mama brought Lori over to see Grandma, Francie told Sissy about the man on the train, expecting that Sissy would comfort her, but her aunt treated it as a great joke. "'So a man pinched you on the L,' she said. "'I wouldn't let that bother me. It means you're getting a good shape, and there are some men who can't resist a woman's shape. Say, I must be getting old!' "'It's been years since anybody pinched me on the L. "'There was a time when I couldn't ride in a crowd "'without coming home black and blue,' she said proudly. "'Is that anything to brag about?' asked Katie. "'Sissy ignored the remark.' The day will come, Francie, she said, when you're 45 and have a shape like a bag of horses' oats tied in the middle. Then you'll look back and long for the old days when men wanted to pinch you. If she does look back, said Katie, it will be because you put it in her mind and not because it's anything wonderful to remember. She turned to Francie. As for you, learn to stand in the train without holding on to a strap. Keep your hands down and keep a long sharp pin in your pocket. If you feel a man's hand on you, stick it good with the pin. Francie did as Mamma said. She learned to keep her feet without holding to a strap. She kept her hand closed on to a long vicious pin in her coat pocket. She hoped someone would pinch her again. She just hoped so so that she could stab him with the pin. It's all very well for Sissy to talk about shapes and men, but I don't like to be pinched in the back. And when I get to be 45, I certainly hope that I have something nicer to look back on and long for than being pinched by a stranger. Sissy ought to be ashamed. What's the matter with me anyhow? Here I stand criticizing Sissy. Sissy, who's been so darn good to me. I'm dissatisfied with my job when I should feel lucky having such interesting work. Imagine getting paid to read when I like to read so much anyhow. And everyone thinks New York is the most wonderful city in the world, and I can't even get to like New York. Seems like I'm the most dissatisfied person in the world, the whole world. Oh, I wish I was young again when everything seemed so wonderful. Just before Labor Day, the boss called Francie into his private office and informed her that Miss Armstrong was leaving to be married. He cleared his throat and added that Miss Armstrong was marrying him, in fact. Francie's conception of a mistress broke and shattered. She had believed that men never married their mistresses, that they cast them aside like worn-out gloves. So Miss Armstrong was to become a wife instead of a worn-out glove. Well, so we'll need a new City Reader, the boss was saying. Miss Armstrong herself suggested that we, uh, try you out, Miss Nolan. Francie's heart jumped. She, City Reader, the most coveted job in the Bureau. There had been truth then in the club's rumors. Another preconceived idea gone. She had always assumed that all rumors were false. The boss planned to offer her 15 a week, figuring he'd get as good a reader as his future wife at half the salary. The girl should be tickled to death, too. A youngster like that. 15 a week. She said she was past 16. She looked 13. Of course, her age was none of his business as long as she was competent. The law couldn't touch him, hiring someone underage. All he'd have to say is that she deceived him as to her true age. "'There's a little raise along with the job,' he said benignly. Francie smiled happily, and he worried. "'Have I put my foot in it?' he thought. Maybe she didn't even expect a raise. He covered his blunder hastily. "A "'A small raise after we see how you work out.' "'I don't know,' began Francie doubtfully. "'She's over sixteen. decided the boss, "'and she's going to hold me up for a big raise. "'To forestall her,' he said, "'we'll give you fifteen a week starting,' he hesitated, "'no use being too good-natured. "'Starting the first of October,' he leaned back in his chair, "'feeling as gracious as God himself. "'I, I mean, I don't think I'll be here much longer,' She's working me for more money, he thought. Aloud, he asked. Why not? I'm going back to school after Labor Day, I think. I meant to tell you as soon as my plans were settled. College? High school. I'll have to put Pinsky on City, he thought. She's getting 25 now, she'll expect 30, and I'm right back where I started. This Nolan is better than Pinsky, too. Damn, Irma. Where does she get the idea that a woman shouldn't work after marriage? She could keep right on, keep the money in the family, buy a home with it. He spoke to Francie. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Not that I don't approve of higher education, but I consider newspaper reading a darn fine education. It's a good life. It's a good life. It's a good life. ever-growing contemporary education. While in school- "'It's merely books. Dead books,' he said contemptuously. "'I'll I'll have to talk it over with my mother. By all means, tell her what your boss said about education, and tell her I said.' He closed his eyes and took the plunge. "'That we'll pay you $20 a week, starting the 1st of November.' He shaved off a month. "'That's an awful lot of money,' she said in all honesty.' We believe in paying our workers well, so they stick with us. And, um, Miss Nolan, please don't mention your future salary. It's more than anyone else is getting. He lied. And if they found out, he spread his hands in a gesture of futility. You understand? No washroom gossip. Francie felt gracious as she set his mind at ease by assuring him that she'd never betray him in the washroom. The boss started to sign letters indicating that the interview was over. That's all, Miss Nolan, and we must have your decision the day after Labor Day. Yes, sir. 20 dollars a week. Francie was stunned. Two months ago she was glad to earn 5 dollars a week. Uncle Willie only earned 18 a week and he was 40. Sissy's John was smart and earned but 2250 a week few men in her neighborhood earned as much as 20 a week, and they had families, too. With that money, our troubles would be over, thought Francie. We could pay rent on a three-room flat somewhere. Mama wouldn't have to go out to work, and Laurie wouldn't be left alone so much. I guess I'd be mighty important if I could manage something like that. But I want to go back to school. She recalled the constant harping on education in the family. Grandma, it will rise you up on the face of the earth. Evie, each of my three children will get three diplomas. Sissy, and when mother goes, pray God not for a long time yet, and baby is big enough to start kindergarten, I'm going out to work again. And I'll bank my pay, and when little Sissy grows up, I'll put her in the best college there is mama. And I don't want my children to have the same hard-working life I have. Education will fix it so that their lives are easier. Still, it's such a good job, thought Francie. That is, good right now. But my eyes will get worn out from the work. All the older readers have to wear glasses. Miss Armstrong said a reader's only as good as long as her eyes hold out. Those other readers were fast, too, when they first started, like me, but now their eyes... I must save my eyes, not read away from the job. If Mama knew I could get 20 a week, maybe she wouldn't send me back to school, and I couldn't blame her. We've been poor so long. Mom is very fair in all things, but this money might make her see things in a different way, And it wouldn't be her fault. I won't tell her about the raise until after she decides about school." Francie spoke to mama about school and mama said yes, they'd have to talk about it. They'd talk about it right after supper that night. After finishing their supper coffee, Katie announced needlessly, since everybody knew it, that school was opening next week. I want both of you to go to high school, but it's working out that only one of you can start this fall. I'm saving every cent I can out of your pay so that next year, both of you will be back in school. She waited. She waited a long time. Neither of the children answered. Well, don't you want to go to high school? Francie's lips were stiff as she spoke so much depended on Mama, and Francie wanted her words to make a good impression. "'Yes, Mama. I want to go back to school more than I ever want anything in my life.' "'I don't want to go,' said Neely. "'Don't make me go back to school, Mama. I like to work, and I'm going to get a two-dollar raise the first of the year. Don't you want to be a doctor?' "'No. I want to be a broker.' "'and make lots of money like my boss is. "'I'll get onto the stock market "'and make a million dollars someday. "'My son will be a great doctor. "'How do you know? "'I might turn out like Dr. Hewler on Möger Street "'with an office in a basement flat "'and always wear a dirty shirt like him. "'Anyhow, I know enough. "'I don't need to go back to school.' "'Neely doesn't want to go back to school,' said Katie.' She spoke to Francie, almost pleadingly. You know what that means, Francie. Francie bit her lip. It wouldn't do to cry. She must keep calm. She must keep thinking clearly. It means, said Mama, that Neely has to go back to school. I won't, cried Neely. I won't go back no matter what you say. I'm working and earning money, and I want to keep on. I'm somebody now with the fellows. If I go back to school, I'm just a punk kid again. Besides, you need my money, Mama. We don't want to be poor again. You'll go back to school, announced Katie quietly. Francie's money will be enough. Why do you make him go when he doesn't want to, cried Francie, and keep me out of school when I want to go so much? Yeah, agreed Neely. Because if I don't make him, he'll never go back, said Mama, where you, Francie, will fight and manage to get back somehow why are you so sure all the time protested francie in a year i'll be too old to go back neely's only 13 he'll still be young enough next year nonsense you'll only be 15 next fall 17 corrected francie going on 18 too old to start what kind of silly talk is that not silly On the job, I'm 16. I have to look and act 16 instead of 14. Next year, I'll be 15 in years, but two years older in the way I'm living. Too old to change back into a schoolgirl. Neely will go back to school next week, said Katie stubbornly, and Francie will go back next year. I hate both of you, shouted Neely, and if you make me go back, I'll run away from home. Yes, I will. He ran out slamming the door. Katie's face set in lines of misery and Francie felt sorry for her. Don't worry mama, he won't run away, he just said that. The instant relief that came into her mother's face angered Francie. But I'm the one who will go away and I won't make a speech about it. When the time comes, when you don't need what I earn, I'll leave. "'What's gotten into my children, who used to be so good?' asked Katie poignantly. "'Years have gotten into us,' Katie looked puzzled. Francie explained. "'We never did get working papers.' "'But they were hard to get. The priest wanted a dollar for each baptismal certificate, and I would have had to go to City Hall with you. I was nursing Lori every two hours then, and couldn't go.' We all figured it was easier for you both to claim to be 16 and not have all the fuss. That part was all right, but saying we were 16, we had to be 16 and you treat us like 13 year old children. I wish your father were here. He understood things about you that I can't get to understand. Pain stabbed through Francie. After it passed, She told her mother that her salary was to be doubled on November 1st. $20? Katie's mouth fell open in surprise. Oh my. That was her usual expression when anything astonished her. When did you know? Saturday. And you didn't tell me till now. No. You thought if I knew that I would fix my mind about you keeping on working. Yes. But I didn't know when I said it was right for Neely to go back to school. You can see that I did what I thought was right, and the money didn't come into it. Can't you see? She asked pleadingly. No, I can't see. I can only see that you favor Neely more than me. You fix everything for him, and tell me that I can find a way myself. Some day I'll fool you, Mama. I'll do what I think is right for me and it might not be right in your way. I'm not worrying, because I know I can trust my daughter. Katie spoke with such simple dignity that Francie was ashamed of herself. And I trust my son. He's mad now about doing what he doesn't want to do, but he'll get over it and do well in school. Neely's a good boy. Yes, he's a good boy conceded Francie. But even if he was bad, you wouldn't notice it. But where I'm concerned, her voice went ragged on a sob. Katie sighed sharply but said nothing. She got up and started to clear the table. Her hand reached for a cup, and Francie, for the first time in her life, saw her mother's hand fumble. It trembled and couldn't connect with the cup. Francie put the cup in her mother's hand. She noticed a big crack in the cup. Our family used to be like a strong cup, thought Francie. It was whole and sound and held things well. When Papa died, the first crack came and this fight tonight made another crack. Soon there will be so many cracks that the cup will break and we'll all be pieces instead of a whole thing together. I don't want this to happen, yet I'm deliberately making a deep crack. Her sharp sigh was just like Katie's. The mother went to the wash basket, in which the baby was sleeping peacefully in spite of the bitter talking. Francie saw her mother's still fumbling hands take the sleeping child from the basket. Katie sat in her rocker near the window, held her baby tightly, and rocked. Francie almost went blind with pity. I shouldn't be so mean to her, she thought. What has she ever had but hard work and trouble? Now she has to turn to her baby for comfort. Maybe she's thinking that Lori, whom she loves so, and who is so dependent on her now, will grow up to turn against her like I'm doing now. She put her hand awkwardly on her mother's cheek. It's all right, Mama. I didn't mean it. You're right, and I'll do as you say. Neely must go to school, and you and I will see that he gets through. Katie put her hand over Francie's. That's my good girl, she said. Don't be mad at me, Mama, because I fought you. You yourself taught me to fight for what I thought was right, and I... I thought I was right. I know, And I'm pleased that you can and will fight for what you should have. And you'll always come out alright, no matter what. You're like me that way." And that's where the whole trouble is, thought Francie. We're too much alike to understand each other because we don't even understand our own selves. Papa and I were two different persons and we understood each other. Mama understands Neely because he's different from her. I wish I was different in the way that Neely is. Then everything's alright now between us? Katie asked with a smile. Of course. Francie smiled back and kissed her mother's cheek. But in their secret hearts, each knew that it wasn't alright and would never be alright between them again.